1: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.
0: From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan.
1: Drivers along Highway 371 in Minnesota noticed something strange earlier this month near mile marker 36. Smiling down from an electronic billboard, the face of a 40-something white man appeared next to the words, This is Troy. He sucks at fishing. Troy is part of a group of anglers that takes a big ice fishing trip every year. According to one member of the group, David V., Troy has been, quote, less than successful. Apparently, Troy can go entire days without catching a fish, and his fishing buddies haven't been shy about giving him a hard time. But the constant trash talk didn't stop Troy from upping the ante. He commissioned a personalized message from actor Christopher McDonald, who you may remember as Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore.
0: You're in big trouble, though, pal. I eat pieces of s*** like you for breakfast.
1: (laughs) You eat pieces of s*** for breakfast? No. In that video, McDonald taunts the rest of the group asking whether they really think they're going to beat Troy on their annual trip. That's when V and his friends decide to let the world know that Troy sucks at fishing. They bought the billboard ad for just under 300 bucks, and it ran for five days. It also included an email address, TroySucks2, at gmail.com, where folks could send even more trash talk Troy's way. V admitted that Troy is a fine fisherman, but their stunt sets a high bar. If you think you and your crew are good smack talkers, you have to ask yourself, are you good enough to show the world via a $300 billboard on Minnesota 371? This week, we've got moose, stream access, and our first snort report of the fall. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. In my week, well, man, a ton has happened. To start off... Thanks to everyone for the dozens of responses to our margarita query. More emails about that than almost any other topic as of recent. Now let's channel that passion and enthusiasm towards conservation, shall we? And let's not forget that we are moving into autumn. So it's time to sunset the margs and move into old-fashioned time frames. And when I say old-fashioned... I mean, the real stuff that doesn't contain any sort of club soda or bubbles and isn't too sweet. I'm sweet enough.
0: Sweet, sweet sugar cola.
1: You know it. Anyway, I have returned from the land of enchantment, New Mexico, and as I was reminded, the enchantment in New Mexico is in the form of chiggers. Chiggers, or trombiculidae, are an evil creation, when in the larval form anyway, they're a six-legged mite. After crawling onto their hosts, in this case me, they inject digestive enzymes into the skin that break down the skin cells. They don't actually bite, but instead form a hole in the skin called a stylostome and chew up tiny parts of the inner skin, thus causing severe irritation and swelling. The severe itching is accompanied by red pimple-like bumps or papules that erupt with pus. If this isn't bad enough, They really hit the friction areas of your body, the waistband, the hip belt, and the backpack straps. Outside of the uh, chigger type of enchantment, we found a lot of the elk type of enchantment as well. Had some great opportunities on young bulls, but we were hunting a big bull unit, which is really hard. I typically set my sights on broadside elk, then I'm more free to look for antlers and deer and birds and just relax and have fun. I had a seriously quartered away shot at 20 yards or so on a small five-point bull, which was tempting, but the arrows I throw are very heavy and slow, so I did not let go of the string. Awesome hiking, hunting, and a great time with Jason Phelps. That guy really can call elk. Moving on to the snort report. We are only three days into our Montana bird season. Snort has been a little slow out of the gate. I honestly wonder if she has some sort of a bug or ailment, as her endurance seems to be down. She's getting fatigued easily, it seems. We've had a few opportunities, but managed a Hungarian partridge, two dove, and a sharp tail Two sharp tails actually. Despite the fatigue, Snort's nose is in incredible shape, and she marks birds and recognizes cover very well. She's still a joy to watch. Just don't know why she's moving so slow. And honestly, her nose is so good, and I do believe she's smart, she may just be telling me that the birds aren't there. Of course, she's correct. I feel like we need to find some new country to work. I run the tracking function of Onyx, as well as a Garmin GPS collar, purely because I love the data, love seeing the amount of ground that we've covered. It also lets me enjoy the hunt, even after we're back home. And suffice it to say, that it's not for the lack of walking. Side note, we've only found two rattlesnakes so far. No bit ears. More to come with the snort report. The season is just warming up and the temps are going to start dropping. So goodbye, snakes. Moving on to the moose desk. Climate change is a bad thing. There's no question about that. But as winters start later and end earlier, certain species will increase their range. The moose in western Alaska are a great example. Thanks to listener John Hansen for sending this one in. Shrubs are expanding across the tundra, in a phenomenon scientists are calling, and I swear I'm not making this up, shrubification. I would have loved to have been in the room when they came up with that term. I imagine the guy responsible for naming things left his Latin dictionary at home, so they went with the intern's suggestion, shrubification. Anyway, moose love shrubs, especially the scrubby willows that shoot up at the edges of the frozen tundra. Shrubification is visible from space, and while moose don't have spaceships, they do have an excellent sense of smell. They've been loving the additional forage, and their numbers on the Tojiak National Wildlife Refuge have increased fourfold. According to a report in High Country News, a good crop of summer vegetation means more moose twins are born and more calves survive. As moose numbers increase, rural Alaskans have historically survived on caribou meat turned to moose, this fall and winter, bag limits for local hunters are more liberal than usual in parts of Bristol Bay and the Yukon Cuscoim Delta. Hunters can harvest two moose each, including antlerless cows. Managers hope this will help be a boon to the people living in these areas and protect the moose herd from growing too large. Too many moose could overforage an area and lead to a population crash. As caribou numbers drop and salmon runs become less predictable, Wildlife managers want to make sure the moose remain on the landscape. It's worth noting that moose aren't expanding across the entire state. East of the Tojiak National Wildlife Refuge, numbers are dropping, with the finger being pointed towards bears, which are predating on calves. Shrubification is just one factor among many, and not all moose are enjoying its effects, but it will be interesting to see how climate change impacts the species we love to hunt and whether those changes will offer additional opportunities that weren't possible just a few decades ago. Be kind of like uh, buying a house in Miami a block from the beach. It's uh, just a matter of time. Moving on to the rewilding desk. Warmer weather is great for moose in Alaska, but it's not so great for the elephants, giraffes in Impalas in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwean officials have begun moving more than 2,500 wild animals to other parts of the country to rescue them from drought. They're being shipped in crates and trucks from Zimbabwe's Save Valley Conservancy in the south to three conservancies in the north in one of Africa's biggest live animal capture and translocation exercises. This particular Noah's Ark includes 400 elephants, 2,000 impalas, 70 giraffes, 50 buffaloes, 50 wildebeest, and an assortment of lions, zebras, and dogs. This isn't the first time the country has moved thousands of animals to save them from natural disasters. In the 50s and the 60s, over 5,000 animals were moved in order to rescue them from rising water caused by the construction of a massive hydroelectric dam. This time, officials are worried that the drought-stricken landscape won't be able to support as many animals as currently live in the Conservancy. A spokesman for the Zimbabwe National Parks and Wildlife Management Authority told the AP that they're afraid the animals will destroy their own habitat in search of scarce water and food. The critters are also encroaching on human settlements to find food, which is causing, quote, incessant conflict. Of course, wildlife officials could just call the animals, But as you can imagine, that's not the most popular idea. Culling has also been rejected because the folks in charge of the project want to use those 2,500 animals to rewild another part of Zimbabwe. Rewilding is a conservation strategy that assumes humans should play a limited role in managing wild landscapes. Rewilding advocates say we should try to replicate natural ecosystems as best we can and then let those systems operate on their own. In Zimbabwe, elephants and zebras aren't just being moved to escape drought, they're being relocated to the Zambezi River Valley to rebuild the wildlife populations there. The operation is called Project Rewild Zambezi, and advocates hope they can, quote, restore the wild back to what it once was. They're not the only ones. In the UK, an outfit called the Kent Wildlife Trust just introduced four European bison to a forest in southeast England. The European bison is not native to England, but project managers believe the European variety will mimic a native species of forest bison that was there during the Pleistocene. The bison were released in a controlled environment, and advocates hope that the animals will help woodland recovery and management. They say the bison are a keystone species that will increase biodiversity and habitat variety. Here's Tom Gibbs, one of the bison rangers, explaining what they hope is going to happen. What we're hoping is that these bison are going to create an open space and really letting light come down to the ground and invigorate in the woods here. And we're hoping that's going to have a massive impact on, on biodiversity and create a more resilient site here for future generations and uh, in the face of things like climate change. Rewilding is based on the trophic cascade theory. You've probably heard this term used in relation to Yellowstone wolves, and we've covered it before on the podcast. According to this highly debatable theory... Large predators and herbivores have an outsized impact on the landscape and reintroducing these species will have positive downstream effects. Their impact will cascade up and down the food chain and restore our ecosystems to what they once were. Moving on to the public land desk. For the first time in history, the Bureau of Land Management has approved an application to store carbon dioxide underground. ExxonMobil will sequester the greenhouse gases deep underneath the earth on BLM land in Lincoln and Sweetwater counties in Wyoming. Exxon currently sells carbon dioxide for commercial uses, and excess carbon dioxide is vented into the atmosphere. Now they'll be able to pipe those gases 18,000 feet underground in the water leg of the Madison Formation. Every day they'll send 60 million cubic feet of carbon dioxide into the storage area through a well and pipeline and the BLM says those gases will be stored there permanently. Carbon dioxide has been injected underground in the United States since the 1940s, but typically as a temporary measure to produce more oil. According to a BLM press release, this is the first time the agency has issued a policy to allow for the permanent underground storage of carbon dioxide. This is a type of carbon sequestration known as geologic sequestration. In this process, carbon dioxide is usually pressurized until it becomes illiquid, and then it is injected into porous rock formations in geologic basins. The other type of carbon sequestration, biologic sequestration, refers to storage of atmospheric carbon in vegetation, soils, woody products, and aquatic environments. If injecting liquid carbon dioxide into our public lands makes you a little nervous, join the club. Public land advocates usually worry about extractive activities, public taking stuff out. Are we now going to have to worry about people putting stuff back in? Also, the fact that the BLM has never approved a project like this sounds like the beginning of a worldwide disaster movie. However, there is reason to believe things won't end quite that badly. Again, been doing this since the 1940s. In 2020, the National Energy Technology Laboratory released a technical report explaining why geologic carbon sequestration is safe for both humans and the environment. In the past 20 years, the U.S. Department of Energy has spent $1 billion, that's a billion with a B, researching this kind of sequestration. Combine those 20 years of experience with the oil industry's five decades of experience, and the BLM's decision doesn't sound like such an outlier. In 2019, for example, more than 25 million metric tons of CO2 were injected into the earth, and the Department of Energy has not observed any impacts to human health or the environment. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Me neither. Like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast, so get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cow policies issued by Western Southern life assurance company, not available in certain States prices subject to underwriting and health questions.
0: O'Reilly auto parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly auto parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly, and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called The Wellness Company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options like you tough it out get sick take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks or you open your medical emergency kit you match your symptoms to the doctor recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, it's not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy, it's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat okay, at slash meat eater.
1: Moving on to the public access desk. It looks like the stream access controversy in New Mexico might finally be winding down, at least for now. Earlier this month, the state Supreme Court issued their written opinion on this case, and it lands squarely in the favor of public access advocates and those that enjoy the F word. Of course, I'm talking freedom. The whole thing is worth a read, but here's the best bit. We hold that the public has the right to recreate and fish in public waters and that this right includes the privilege to do such acts as are reasonably necessary to affect the enjoyment of such right. Walking and waiting on the privately owned beds beneath public water is reasonably necessary for the enjoyment of many forms of fishing and recreation. The court stressed that anglers can't trespass on private property in order to access a stream, and they can't trespass from the stream onto private property. But nobody's ever been asking for that. Anglers have every right to wade up or down a stream, even if it crosses through private property. If you haven't been following this case, here's the quick backstory. The New Mexico Game Commission had a process that they basically created by which a landowner could apply to designate a stream running through their property as non-navigable. This was based on some poorly chosen words thrown out there and acted upon as an opportunity. If the state granted this designation, the landowner could prohibit access to the stream, even if an angler accessed the water on public land and never set foot on either bank. This was clearly... In violation of the state constitution. The Adobe Whitewater Club of New Mexico, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, and the New Mexico Chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers challenged the regulations in a lawsuit filed with the state Supreme Court. The court issued a verbal ruling when they heard the case, but a small minority of landowners were reportedly not complying with the ruling because the court had not yet issued a written opinion. Those landowners were from Texas. With this latest development, the issuing of the written opinion, New Mexico joins tons of other states like Montana, Idaho, Iowa, Minnesota, North Dakota, and ironically Texas in affirming the public ownership and use of water for recreational purposes. We can celebrate this victory, but it's not an excuse to act like a Yahoo. Respect the landowners whose property you're fishing through. Most of them are happy to have you there, but some of them are understandably worried about strangers so near their property. I'm preaching to the choir here but remember to be respectful, don't cause any damage, and don't leave any trash. Moving on to the waterfowl desk. Several of you wrote in recently about the decision by the United States Department of Agriculture to ban all imports of hunter-harvested waterfowl meat from Canada. The move was designed to prevent the spread of bird flu, but as meat-eater Sean Weaver pointed out in an article on TheMeatEater.com, this decision put American waterfowl hunters in an impossible dilemma they weren't allowed to bring their game meat across the border, and you can't just go up there and kill a bunch of birds and leave them. Well, I'm pleased to report that thanks in part to the outcry from hunters, the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service has reversed their decision. Rather than bar all hunter-harvested wild game bird carcasses, the USDA is requiring hunters to process their take according to a multi-step process. First, hunters must remove the viscera head, neck, feet, skin, and one wing from the bird. The remaining wing, as you likely know, has to have the feathers attached and is required by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for species identification. Carcasses must be chilled or frozen. They must be rinsed in fresh, clean, potable water prior to packaging, and they must not have visible evidence of contamination with dirt, blood, or feces carcasses must also be imported in leak-proof plastic packaging and stored in a leak-proof container or cooler for transport. Cooked or cured meat is still not allowed because that makes species identification impossible. Taxidermy trophies must either be fully finished or accompanied by a VS import permit or consigned directly to a USDA-approved establishment. Karen Waldrop, Ducks Unlimited Chief Conservation Officer, told me she's grateful the USDA was willing to sit down with her and find an alternative solution. Well, first I'd like to thank um, USDA APHIS and their staff for sitting down and and being willing to talk to us and discuss the, the science behind this What are some opportunities to maybe change this ban, this full-out ban, to something to where hunters can bring their birds back, their harvest back into the states? So I want to thank uh, the senior leadership and also the staff that uh, sat down and worked with us on, on some of this and some of the information that we were able to provide to them to help inform their decision going forward. It isn't every day a big federal agency resolves a bad decision so quickly. The updated guidance was issued less than two weeks after the initial ban went into effect which is lightning fast for government bureaucracy. Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, and the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation were all involved in making this happen, and they wouldn't have succeeded without support from hunters like you. Moving on to the legal desk. In Wyoming, the owner of Elk Mountain Ranch is claiming over $7 million in damages after four Missouri hunters corner-crossed into the airspace of his property, according to a new report in WioFile. This is the same corner crossing case we've been tracking closely for nearly a year. Four hunters from Missouri used a ladder to cross between one block of public land to another at the point where the corners touch. They were exonerated of criminal trespass charges, but a civil case is still before the U.S. District Court in Wyoming. For that grave sin of bruising airspace on Elk Mountain Ranch, the owner, a North Carolina businessman named Frederick Eshelman, is claiming that the hunters damaged his property to the tune of as much as $7.75 million. The hunters never set foot on the property, so you might be asking yourself, where does Eshelman get the nerve to ask for such a huge sum of money? Eshelman is claiming damages for several things, such as the time it took ranch employees to confront the legally hunting hunters that never should have been confronted, then the bulk of the $7 million figure is based on the supposed devaluation of the ranch in the event that the court rules in favor of the hunters. Eshelman is arguing that if the court decides that corner crossing is legal, his ranch will be worth 10 to 15 percent less than it currently is.
0: Oh my God! He made it.
1: He will no longer have exclusive access. To those public blocks, which will bring his property value down from its current $31 million value. In other words, he's acknowledging that he has a monetary stake in excluding the public from public property. He's also admitting that he thinks that buying a property that was valued as he claims on a flimsy idea of people not being able to walk from public land to public land while only stepping on public land was a bad idea. But Instead of admitting that that was a poor gamble to make, he wants somebody else to pay for it. Public land, bro. Nobody is advocating that people get a step on your private property. The Wyoming chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has been funding the hunter's case. Land Tawney, the president and CEO of BHA, called the filing the most egregious thing I've ever seen. He characterized the astronomical figure as a scare tactic meant to bully the Missouri hunters into backing down. If you'd like to stand with these fellows, show your support by donating to the Corner Crossing Legal Fee Fundraiser on GoFundMe, or you can donate directly to Wyoming Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, which of course is a 501c3 nonprofit. In another legal update, A judge has allowed a group of conservation organizations to intervene in a lawsuit that could impact the entire Montana elk herd. We've covered previously a lawsuit brought by the United Property Owners of Montana against Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. The lawsuit asked the court to require Montana FWP to reduce the state's elk herd by about 50,000 animals. It would also transfer power to set wildlife policy from the state's game commission to the state legislature. A coalition of conservation and wildlife groups that includes the Montana Wildlife Federation, Montana Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and the Montana Bowhunters Association, among others, filed a motion to intervene in the case. This would make them the official third parties in the suit, which gives them the right to have their own legal representation. While the judge did not grant the request as it relates to elk management criteria She is allowing them to intervene regarding a law requiring landowners to allow public access to receive game damage assistance. This was a crucial part of the suit, and the judge ruled that as public land advocates, these groups have standing to intervene. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to ASKCAL, that's askcal at themeateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods As we're getting closer to fall, you may find yourself in need of a clean, quiet, powerful chainsaw. Well, I'm here to remind you, go to steeldealers.com. You can find a local, knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They'll get you set up with what you need and not try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week.
0: it's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.